1: Welcome to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series on the New Books Network hosted by the New Books in Political Science channel. In this uh, sixth episode, we're featuring another exemplary study in interpretive political science, which is Authoritarian Apprehensions, Ideology, Judgment and Mourning in Syria, published in 2019 by the University of Chicago Press as part of its Chicago Studies in Practices of Meaning series. The book's author is Lisa Wadeen, the Mary R. Morton Professor of Political Science and the College and Co-Director of the Chicago Centre for Contemporary Theory at the University of Chicago. And she'll be speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, a Fellow at the Australian National University. Lisa, congratulations not only on your new book, but also on the two awards that the book has already garnered, namely the Best Book Award of the Middle East and North Africa Politics section of the American Political Science Association and the Charles Taylor Book Award of APSA's Interpretive Methodologies and Methods section.
0: Thank you very much for having me on the program.
1: Lisa, this is your second book on Syria, The First, Ambiguities of Domination, which was published two decades earlier, has by now earned the status of a recent classic, a book that has had a profound effect on how we've come to think about both the tasks and methods of political science, particularly in its interpretivist variants. So how do you see your new book as at once building upon and also outwards from its predecessor?
0: Well, the two books deal with three different forms of compliance inducement and three different series. Ambiguities of Domination, my first book, as you mentioned, was written in 1999. It captured the conditions of a durable autocracy whose reliance on single-party rule and omnipresent security apparatus and flagrantly fictitious claims had been come to seem brittle and outmoded to observers and participants alike. No one believed that President Hafez al-Assad, who ruled from 1970 to 2000, was the so-called first pharmacist or would live forever or won elections by 99.2% of the vote. In other words, there was a discernible drabness and asceticism to these years of a palpable fatigue. Authoritarian Apprehensions, written two decades later, examines two additional modes of compliance inducement in changed circumstances. The first decade of Bashar al-Assad's rule 2000-2010 ushered in an avowedly up Be modern, internet-savvy authoritarianism. And its institutions and rhetoric relied less on party mechanisms of social control and more on an array of cultural producers with their highly vaunted expertise as technocrats, along with regime-organized, market-inflected civil society organizations, or so-called, I should say, society organizations, which were tapping into a spirit of youthful volunteerism. And this all changed in the second decade with the emergence of a civil war autocracy in which the means and mechanisms of mediation were no longer geared to perpetuation, but rather to the restoration of a stability that had been radically challenged first by peaceful protest and then by armed insurgency. That challenge stemmed from a passionate commitment among some Syrians to an it-could-have-been-otherwise of political existence. And the latter phrase echoes Theodore Adorno, and it speaks to this book's engagement with the possibilities and impediments to social transformation. Not so much resistance per se as the imagined alternatives opened up By the necessarily retroactive analysis of political potential in the present. So, here the films of Osama Muhammad and Ziad Khalsoum and the shorts of the anonymous collective Abu Nadara have provided inspiration in thinking through and opening up possibilities for renewed political judgment. As controversial works of political theory in their own right, they are. Suggestive, and they offer a kind of interpretive generosity and imagination to explore the paths not taken and the forms of knowing and resonance hovering around the edges of our multiple worlds. So, whereas the first book asked the rather narrow question, "Why bother with a cult of personality whose rituals of obeisance were transparently phony?" Authoritarian apprehensions is for better and for worse, more capacious and ambitious. It investigates the seductions and limitations of authoritarianism more generally. And in order to think in those terms, I had to learn a lot about a strain of thinking about ideology that I honestly didn't initially know all that much about. I came to read voraciously in the culturalist Marxist tradition and considered ways we might repurpose ideology for the present. Now, much of the academic work on Syria in the discipline of political science, as you know, tends to focus on coercive aspects of regime survival or the political economy of the country. And indeed, in the context of the uprisings, work focused on the revolution tended to ask why the uprisings happened when it did and why a primarily peaceful protest movement devolved into a bloody civil war. There was another body of important work that has given voice to the experience of living under authoritarian rule in Syria, and much of this work was written by and about journalists, artists, refugees, migrants, activists, and former prisoners, many now living in exile. And my book, while crafted in appreciation of these writings, is different. As a work of interpretive social science, authoritarian apprehensions is an effort to contribute to an ongoing theoretical conversation about authoritarianism by drawing attention back to the importance of ideology in the cultural Marxist understanding of that term. In other words, to modes of interpolation, the complexities of political address, the fact of ambivalence, and the underlying investments in fantasy that are impervious to and even sometimes reinforced by criticism. And the book also considers the openings for political judgment, and it's an engagement with the potentialities inherent in proceeding through the long process of mourning, of gradually coming to terms with the enormity of the Syrian calamity. So basically, my book, this book, is an effort to repurpose ideology for our present, and it asks, how has the Syrian regime been able to bear the brunt of the challenges raised against it? And what does the Syrian example tell us about the seductions of authoritarian politics more generally?
1: So you speak about the cultural Marxist traditions that you are reading in and thinking with. And one of the characteristics of your work that was striking to me is your attention to ideology as form. It seemed to me that what you don't want to do is try and make a causal claim about the part that ideology is playing in all of this, as some scholars in the orthodoxy of political science would choose to do, but rather think about ideology as having an orienting role of some sort. Can you address the quality of ideology as form, and perhaps also from there go to how it relates to what you refer to as the logic of disavowal, which is captured in this formulation of I know very well nevertheless.
0: Those are really helpful questions. And, and you're right to point out that ideology, in the sense I use the term, works through seduction, arousing fantasy content while simultaneously diffusing it and smoothing out contradictions. It helps manage collective anxieties and socio political incompatibilities by providing mechanisms that allow dissonances to be contained, displaced, and disavowed. And I want to take each of these in turn or separately. So as containment, all of these are part of understanding ideology as form, as opposed to simply through its content. So as containment, ideology operates by making what are essentially social and historical anxieties seem natural and inevitable, gratifying desires largely to the extent that they're kept in check. An ideology also works as displacement in which unbearable fears are relocated onto a new object, allaying anxieties by transferring unacceptable attributes onto a fantasy other, conspiracies of national undoing that put so-called terrorists at the heart of the problem or projections of in-group violence outward. These are some processes of displacement which were frequently at work helping organize or orient collective life in serious authoritarian circumstances. And of course, there are many parallels elsewhere. And ideology operates, Nick, as you pointed out, and I think this is the most interesting part of ideology is form, frankly as disavowal. The theorist Octave Manoni noticed how people would rationalize their lives, acknowledging and disavowing simultaneously. Now, the phrase, I know very well and yet nevertheless, je sais bien quand même, exemplifies this mode of disavowal, a distancing from accountability that has implications for politics. In the case of Syria, the disavowal typically worked like this I know very well that the regime is incorrigibly corrupt, and yet, nevertheless, we can build government sponsored civil society organizations that truly empower citizens. Or I know very well that there's no going back to the way things were before the war, and yet everything will resolve itself as easily as biting into a zucchini. That's a a Syrian term. Or to take an example explored in depth in the book, I know very well that Sunni gangs did not visit our village in the night, and yet nevertheless they could have. We're among secular activists in the first two years of the uprising. I know very well there are violent Islamic militants among the opposition, but nevertheless they're not really a problem, or I shall act as if they don't exist. And now, disavowal goes beyond denial in that the problem calling for judgment is at least posed. In disavowal, the power of ideology comes into especially bold relief with subjects hailed into a position where the realities that can no longer be denied can still be dismissed. In this sense, disavowal expresses the contradiction, it simultaneously repudiates. So in sum, ideology matters in answering my question, how did the regime bear the brunt of challenges raised against it? Ideology matters in cultivating citizens' attachments, and it works not only through outright belief, but through mechanisms that complicate belief and unbelief. It can generate ardent loyalty, but also ambivalence. And in the case of Syria, this ambivalence, that toggle between desires for reform and the attachment to order helped the regime recalibrate its relationship to rule. As you also, I think, were alluding to, the term ideology has a long and vexed history. I use it here not to refer to a party platform or a distinct doctrine, although it can be made manifest in discrete documents. And instead, following this cultural Marxist tradition, ideology refers to embodied, affectively-laden discourses that are conveyed in part acephalously through everyday activities understood not simply as content but also as form and undergirded by fantasy investments that prove sticky. Ideology has identifiable material and structuring effects.
1: Could you give an illustration from the book of those everyday activities and how ideology does its work as form?
0: So. We can think about the ways in which authoritarian rule in Syria was long-standing and it's stabilizing effects entrenched by the late 1980s and its neoliberal variant began gradually to emerge in the 1990s with selective economic reforms followed by ambitious privatization initiatives And in that context, in Syria in the 2000s, circles of privilege expanded and contracted at the same time, resulting in countervailing tendencies that congealed some differences. The gap between rich and poor widened with more people appearing more prosperous, producing new bases for inclusion. Access to information technologies, I'm just giving you a little context for some of these examples. Increased possibilities for travel and expanding circle of financial and social networks reflected in the first family's exemplifications cosmopolitan living and a growing familiarity with urbane tastes, if not necessarily the means to indulge them, these quotidian novelties constituted an important shift. In that context of introducing some measure of economic reform and playing catch up in the glossies with global trends, the professional managerial elite broadened to include global advertising's local subsidiaries and members of Siri's regionally successful celebrity-conscious drama community. And the The latter could be called on to produce messages celebrating a modernity that performed both on and off the screen a version of the good life consonant with the one being exemplified by the regime. So in exploring the limits of rebellion and the seductions of status quo conventionality, my book shows how the Syrian regime managed to produce a silent majority of citizens invested in stability and fearful of alternatives. In doing so, I argue that what might best be described Following Lauren Berlant as an ideology of the good life, operated among key metropolitan populations to organize desire and quell dissent. Now, there's a content to this good life. Syria's good life entailed not only the usual aspirations to economic well being, but also fantasies of multicultural accommodation and a secure, sovereign, pride inducing national identity. These visions and inducements to compliance in the first decade of President Bashar al Assad's rule unevenly. Saturating and in flux, define the terms in which neoliberal autocracy was created, sustained, and in the context of the uprising reconfigured. In reviving the concept of ideology, not simply in terms of the content, which of course matters and is tethered to the form, I also am requiring an acknowledgement of the complexities of ideological address. So the point here is, in part, That ideology operates as a set of repetitive socio political interactions. And in the context of being interpolated, I don't necessarily have to buy into the idea that the first family really has my best interests in mind or that their image of a first family mimesis is the one that I want to sign on for. But nonetheless, there is a way in which these kinds of socio-political interactions, the images produced, ends up having a kind of importance or influence, even if one doesn't necessarily believe in the images being put forth. So that one can think, well, the first family may not be as benevolent as I thought it would be, but nevertheless, they're the best we can have. Uh, There can be In the years leading up to the uprising, this dynamic of being able to not necessarily believe all of the content, but nevertheless take on some of the aspects of smoothing out inconsistencies or displacing anxieties onto fantasy others like Sunni gangs or the kinds of examples of disavowal I gave you at first really did matter, not simply because people are variously liable, to recognize themselves as different kinds of hailed subjects, but also because the regime's recognition of citizens' response were critical to how the contours of inclusion and exclusion are drawn. So in the years leading up to the uprising, this dynamic was frequently in evidence and the obvious unease some Syrians were made to feel when they did not fully live up to the regime's brand of modern commodified competence. Scenes like the one I'm going to relate to you in, which worlds collided, became rather typical. So a nuclear family of seven, it's an uh, uh, anecdote from the book, dressed in conservative clothing comes to town from the outskirts of Damascus to have pizza or ice cream at a fancy cafe, an upscale establishment in a prosperous district. And money as such is not the issue, but styles of comportment are. In these settings, dress, bearing, dialect differences, and even Even the pronunciation of certain words invited invidious distinctions between citizens coded as country bumpkins despite their newly acquired wealth and the embodied dispositions or habitus of the regime's upwardly mobile, professional, managerial elite, the elite of neoliberal autocracy. The disdain was palpable in public places where people of different background conditions were brought together, the snickers of contempt audible, the comments on smells and Styles of comportment part and parcel of a grappling with new forms of commercialized living. And as Pierre Bourdieu writes, those who presume to join the group without being the product of the same social conditions are trapped whatever they do in a choice between anxious hyper-identification and the negativity which admits its defeat in its very revolt. So Bourdieu's describing working class aspirations and aristocratic forms of cultural capital in Europe, but by contrast, the image-making strategies opted for in the Syrian case Combined a globally recognizable imprimatur of name brand chic with a long time, largely Sunni bourgeois sense of urbane decorum, compensating for the regime's parvenu origins in the hinterland. But the theoretical point is nevertheless the same. A collusion between regime and market in Syria produced a set of mechanisms for inviting and signaling membership, disseminating the standards through which alternative choices for everyday existence, such as conservative clothing, intensified practices of piety, and large family size were deemed inferior. And this social judgment, registered in the 2000s in the dissemination and enforcement of the new official aesthetic as opposed to the party wooden pamphlets of old, operated as the allegory of interpolation that Althusser put forward, and I can say a little bit more about that, suggests to dismiss, ignore, disparage other ways of being in the world. So what Makes scenes like the one I described so cringeworthy and typical is their occurrence in the face of efforts at hyper-identification. Adopted by the ruling family and purveyed through sanctioned glossy magazines and global PR firms, lifestyle-oriented radio and television programs, and local billboards, these signaling mechanisms exemplified a convenient alliance between neoliberal and capital and autocracy, and as I discuss in the book, those whose styles of comportment, affective registers, and ordinary embodied habits chafed against the newer, glitzier regime-oriented ones generated spaces for conflict, occasioned resentment, and ultimately created populations rife with dissatisfaction. So practices of rejection, including microprocesses signaling disdain and disrespect, being coded as backward, for example, diminished what otherwise might have been earnest, if sometimes embarrassed, pursuits of inclusion into the existing system. And as scholars of social movements and of civil war grievance note, it's not the conditions in and of themselves that cause change, but they do describe sites of disaffect. Affection disposed towards some degree of activism, often independent of parameters such as wealth or s- simple economic well being. In Syria, these scenes of encounter suggest the background conditions for what became a clarion call for dignity, a political ethical claim both castigating the regime for its moral and material corruption and demanding recognition of humans' non instrumental intrinsic worth.
1: I'm really glad that you raised this example from the cafe culture because it goes to one of the things about the book that I found both fascinating but also challenging and that is in that illustration you attended to the part that I think you referred to specifically social judgment played in the relations between the participants in that moment but then the book is equally concerned with moving from that form of judgment if I'm using that term correctly to another form which you alluded to in your opening remarks relating to a kind of renewed political judgment that comes out of films and other material that you study throughout the text. So, But what I'm keen to do is try to relate those two types of judgment to one another and how your project to attend to that renewed political judgment emerges out of your attention to this type of judgment that's present in ideology as form in everyday life.
0: I think that's an excellent question. And in all honesty, I don't think of those kinds of disparaging or disdainful micro processes of social judgment being what I am referring to most directly in the title, where, as you rightly point out, I'm thinking much more about the human capacity for political judgment, and particularly the ways in which artistic works, such as Osama Muhammad's Silvered Water, or Ziad Kulsum's The Mortal, or depending upon translation, Eternal Sergeant, the ways in which that attempts to enact a certain kind of what Hannah Arendt called representative thinking. And for her, political judgment entailed this kind of representation. In other words, she writes something like, I form an opinion by considering a given issue from different viewpoints, she says, by making present to my mind the standpoints of those who are absent. So this process does not blindly adopt the actual views of those who stand outside or elsewhere and hence look upon the world from a different perspective. This is neither, she says, a question of empathy as though she were trying to over identify with say human suffering, nor is this about counting noses and joining a majority, but of being and thinking in one's own identity where actually one is not. So the more people's standpoints you have present in your mind while pondering a given issue, the better one can imagine how one would feel and think if one were in their place. And it seems to me that it's this kind of enlarged mentality, to borrow Immanuel Kant's term or Linda Zarelli's gloss on it, an enlarged manner of thinking whose condition of possibility is not the faculty of understanding but imagination. This imagination, in other words, uh, by enabling multiple standpoints without trying to seize ownership of any one of them, of being myself in a place where I am not. This is what some of the artistic projects in Syria were so good at doing, not only being examples of this, but also offering a kind of polyphonic way of understanding different kinds of Syrian voices, evoking possibilities of what representative thinking might actually look like in practice, drawing attention too to some of the vagueness in Arendt's formulation by providing a certain kind of salutary provocation.
1: Can I again ask you to illustrate that point?
0: So, for example, in Ziad Khulsum's ethnographic film, disagreement is portrayed in all its visual and cacophonous richness and feelings of terror and boredom get mixed up with viewpoints and giggles and crazy narrations and tears and charged silences. And the director's ultimate decision to defect facilitates the previously split participant-observer psychological reintegration that the film makes clear. And allows us to see a kind of renewed embrace, not only of cinema, but of its capacity for political judgment. Or in Osama Muhammad's meta-commentary on cinema's structural capacity to offer multiple perspectives and to envision dissonance as radical potential, situates the director as a representative thinker in his or her own right putting him in this case in various places where he is not, among protesters, amid the rubble of homes, in the regime's barracks, dancing debki, and in doing so, his film avowedly commits to the image, not so much to supply additional facts as to reveal what we already know by changing the meaning of what we see.
1: I should say that we might also, if you would offer them, place links to a couple of these pieces on the website where this episode will be posted as well. So listeners can have an opportunity to see for themselves the work that you're referring to. Lisa, let's take a short break here for a sponsor's announcement. And when we come back, we'll turn more directly to questions of method to data generation, to what it means to you to do interpretivist political science, and to questions of generalization from interpretivist inquiry. Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, where today our guest is Lisa Woodin, author of Authoritarian apprehensions. So We've spoken a little bit about the category of neoliberal autocracy and some of the characteristics and aesthetics of that neoliberal autocracy in Syria that inform your thinking and writing in the book. And One way that you characterize this regime type, which was tremendously useful for my own understanding, is that it simultaneously structures reticence and political participation. That's to say that the logic of disavowal is incorporated into structures, structuring of reticence and political participation. Do you have any examples from the text also that we could offer listeners that they get a better sense of how that relationship between reticence and participation is working?
0: Yes, thanks very much, Nick, uh, for pushing me on this a bit more. So take, for example, uh, my chapter three, which crudely put is about fake news. And in the war-torn dictatorship of Syria, so now we're talking about the second decade, we see the media's demand for sensational content, and I mean a global media's demand for sensational content here, driving regime supporters and well-meaning citizen journalists alike to massage, if not fabricate, evidence, including video footage leading both Syrian citizens and global observers to doubt the validity of news reports and the claims of fact-finding missions. And these conditions intended to enable the frayed Syrian state's counterinsurgency campaign, which worked not so much by maintaining credibility in itself as by casting doubt on all reporting, thereby seizing advantage in an oversaturated high-speed information environment, and the argument I made here was threefold, uh, speaking to both instances of reticence and participation. First, and this is a lesson Syrian citizen activists learned at tremendous cost, too much information may actually generate the very uncertainty that putting it into circulation was intended to allay. Over the course of the uprising, the Syrian state's ideological apparatus, no longer able to brand the regime as a kinder, gentler version of autocracy, learned how to exploit conditions of Fear and insecurity to counter human rights activists and Syrian journalists' attempts to document the truth. So, by disseminating its own claims and counterclaims, and by taking advantage of an inexperienced, conflict ridden opposition, the regime has not only always been able to establish its own authority over the facts, but it's been successful in raising doubts about the nature of evidence and the credibility of oppositional narratives. And second, that information overload and the potential for uncertainty it generated, as scholars of also American politics have long pointed out, may induce people to seek out opinions reaffirming their own. And this tendency towards balkanization can lead to polarization. So internet users, to take an off used example, tend to gravitate towards sites that function like echo chambers where people relish the sound of the stories they tell themselves and the stories they tell themselves about the stories they tell themselves this gravitation towards a comfort zone in which seeing is believing may have little to do with actual facts, even on the assumption that the latter are ultimately knowable. So the atmosphere of uncertainty cultivated by an excess of information can create what I've called siloed publics, where debates take place within narrow communities of argument that allow interlocutors to take pleasure in encountering views that confirm their own often in the mode of I know very well and yet nevertheless. And third, the very condition of uncertainty provides some with an alibi to avoid committing to judgment at all. This is your reticence point. In conditions of information saturation and perhaps especially when feelings of present danger are Extruding what Brian Masumi calls a remainder of threat potential, that's a little jargony as a formulation, but the point is that uncertainty can provide a potent seeming rationale for inaction in a context where action might otherwise have seemed morally incumbent of course, in the current context of massively intensified violence, reasons for hunkering down and staying safe, overwhelmed. But in the first years of the uprising, this recourse to non-judgment mattered. A self-satisfied ambivalence, and ambivalence is a key concept for me, was nurtured by an atmosphere of doubt that justified political paralysis, withdrawal, and disavowal, particularly among the professional managerial elite, including cultural producers. Their silence, I argue, helped the regime to navigate the changing circumstances of its rule.
1: Lisa, you wrote this book, you say, with a sense of solidarity with Syrians, not solidarity in a hackneyed sense of the term, but solidarity that accommodates disagreement, judgment, anger, surprise, and even revulsion. What are the implications of that sense of solidarity for your research methods and also for your writing practice?
0: Writing from a situated perspective, for me, meant not giving in to titillating curiosity about people who find themselves being violated and exploited by the devastating conditions in which they're living. I do engage subjects as sources of ethnographic knowledge, but I I do so while maintaining the ethical imperative to be vigilant about how we maintain respect for and stage interpretive encounters with others whom we seek to understand and be in dialogue with. And this orientation calls for cultivating curiosity, reflexivity, and enduring commitment. So writing a book about Syria in these calamitous times, has been heartbreaking, intellectually demanding, and confusing, sometimes gratifying at other times, frustrating, depressing, and exhausting. One thing that I didn't do was produce a book Quickly, as the uprising began to unfold in 2011, I was not able to grapple with grief, either my own or others, much closer to the hopes and violence than I was. And I had to figure out how to write about a devastating situation in ways that maintained fidelity to my social scientific commitments without either sensationalizing or seeming insensitive. Um, It became an exercise in humility, uh, one that that took a long time, uh, one which required me to think both historically and to take every interlocutor seriously, including those who, as you mentioned, whose political positions I found repugnant.
1: In doing that work, a great deal of the research that you undertook was from outside of Syria, since it was not possible to travel there, if I understand correctly. One level the book then is a multi-sided ethnography. You work across a number of countries and a variety of media, some of which we've already heard about. Was that largely a response specifically to the fact that it wasn't possible for you to do the fieldwork work there after 2011? Or from the outset, were you interested to do work on a book that would call for this different sense of field site and a different sense of temporality, say, from its predecessor?
0: It really was a result of the conflict that I was compelled to do a multi-sided ethnography And having done it, I have to say that I learned a tremendous amount. It allowed me to experience people and follow up with them as their lives evolved in new and challenging contexts. And and it also meant that I met a number of new people and in different settings along the way, which... I think potentially enhanced my own encounters and complicated the interpretive experience. There's never nothing going on. So these new environments required new strategies of attunement and innovative ways of, of staying committed So for several years after I left Syria in May 2011, I spent most of the summers in Beirut. And for a period I was gone maybe five, six times a year visiting Beirut. Now, or at least before the COVID calamity, I was also spending a lot of time in Turkey and and in different kinds of settings, including at the border, teaching refugee children. So by this point, I've met more Syrians outside of Syria than I did when I was there. And I should say I started to do fieldwork in Syria in 19. 1985, So it was a very long time. Part of that had to do with the way many people were freed up during the heady days of the initial uprising to talk a bit more. But as things devolved into much more violent forms of protest and conflict, people seeking refuge went into exile in places like Beirut. I was living there in the summer of 2012, when another signature event occurred, the bombing of a regime headquarters in downtown Damascus. And at that point, everything became became uncertain and an estimated 50,000 Syrian citizens came over the border in a single week. There were folks who clearly identified with the opposition and others that were pro-regime. And I met even more representatives of that ambivalent middle that became so important to the arguments about ideology that authoritarian apprehensions ended up making. And I have to say, I'm grateful to all Syrians for the kind of generosity that they gave to me in times that were absolutely earth shattering for them, in an effort to help me understand what was going on and how to think about my own theoretical concerns in a context that did justice to their varied experiences.
1: I gather that overwhelmingly throughout all of this field work, and certainly with the sources and the media that you've referred to throughout the interview you're working in Arabic and One of the points that you were making earlier on is that you're not treating these materials as sources in the sense that some political scientists may treat them, but rather you're thinking with them and through them to do certain kinds of theoretical work. Could you speak a little bit more to how your use of Arabic language materials and the work that you do in Arabic in the field informs the interpretations that you offer, how it in reflects as it were the, the theoretical innovations that you come up with in the book
0: I make a serious effort to use Syrian films, videos, television serials, comedies, and other artistic works, ones done by folks who are more identified with the regime and ones done by opposition-oriented cultural producers, not simply, Nick, as you were pointing out as evidence for a point, as many political scientists might use such cultural production if they use it at all, but also as a way of thinking with and through these cultural products. In other words, I treat some Syrian artists as political theorists in their own right, interlocutors rather than informants, a terrible word. So their artifacts expand the space of the interpretive encounter to help diagnose and see ways out of current impasses collectively. And I take conversations with artists and filmmakers who are exploring ways to open up our thinking about, for example, political judgment or how ideological interpolation happens. And I put them into conversation with scholars like Hannah Arendt and Ludwig Wittgenstein in the case of judgment or Marx, Althusser, Butler, Jameson, and Zizek in the case of interpolation. Now, is Wittgenstein well known in Syria? No but does he have something to say about how political judgments are made that's relevant to Syria? Absolutely. Does Osama Muhammad have something to say to Hannah Arendt and those interested in representative thinking? Without a doubt. So there are different ways to use cultural production and not all of them are simply representations or affirmations or exemplifications of a theory. They can also be specific encapsulations of or pathways into broader questions that are of abiding perennial importance to scholars in both the global South and global North.
1: And that brings us to, I think, the important question then of how we work towards what you refer to as the seductions of authoritarian politics more generally out of this particular inquiry and other inquiries like it that especially interpretivist political scientists may be interested to undertake. So you have clearly a response to your question of how the Syrian regime has prevailed against the challenges that have been thrown up to it. But then how do you work towards generalization? Um, How do you get at this question of what we can learn about the seductions of authoritarian politics more generally from your inquiry into, for want of a better way of putting it, the Syrian case?
0: So more generally, I would make three points, two theoretical and one methodological First, because Authoritarian Apprehensions is a book about ideology that is designed to think about ideology as form, about how ideology structures life worlds and is materialized in social activity. My claims are meant to be abstract enough to travel. They're very portable. And second, the book is deeply concerned with political judgment and possibilities for representative thinking. That, I think, also travels well. Third, I want to think methodologically about the artistic practices I study in the book. As you point out, this is not simply as evidence to underscore a point, but as theoretical openings that come about by placing interlocutors in conversation with other theorists to imagine roads not traveled. And this is what I noted before about capturing the elusive political otherwiseness to how things are, considering alternatives that challenge conventional ways of thinking and being in the world. Those three things, the efforts to repurpose ideology for the present by privileging form, the concern with political judgment and the possibilities for representative thinking, and the treatment of Syrian cultural production as political theory in its own right, these interventions, I think, have general portability, both conceptually and methodologically. And with that said, certain aspects of the book that might be portable are still time sensitive, like the seductions of autocracy, like the ways in which neoliberalism waxes and wanes. Has neoliberalism become less important than it used to be? If so, what are its lasting effects? How do we see its traces over time? These are questions that have come to the fore for me in the aftermath of the book. What versions of marketization are with us for the near future? And what's the difference between the neoliberal and capitalism? These questions are to some extent explored in the book, but they are time-specific. As a general proposition, I don't think you're ever going to have a social world that doesn't include ideology. However, there will always be discourses discourses undergirded by fantasy investments that take a consistent form, independent of specific and important content. To put it differently, the form of ideology as containment, as displacement, as disavowal is general and expansive, but the specific conditions and contours of neoliberal autocracy are of the moment. And even there, there is portability. There are other neoliberal autocratic regimes that operate within these kinds of contradictions, for example. Those contradictions need not cause conflict or enable stasis, but they are part and parcel of what makes neoliberal autocracy. Specific. So there are lots of moments of generalization and generalizability in the text, and I hope that our previous conversation has helped to make some of this clear. Maybe it's helpful a little bit to do a a bit of enumeration here and suggest the following. First, Beyond the barrels of the gun and the confines of the torture chamber, regimes are able to design and take advantage of circumstances in ways that showcase how ideology matters. And ideology matters not only in generating belief or or loyalty, but also in creating ambivalence. Ambivalence, that toggle between attachment and desire can be crucial to the maintenance of status quo conventionality. Second, Ambivalence doesn't simply reference cognitive states, but also affective dispositions, demanding an account of attachment and desire that grapples not only with discourses or ideological content, but with form and the fantasy investments that prove, as I suggested, sticky, even when they're self-consciously repudiated. Third, interpolation. And this we didn't really say that much about except through example. That sense of being hailed or addressed is unevenly saturating and in flux. Not everybody is interpolated in the same way. The mechanisms of interpolation need not be direct or believable in order to be potent for people can believe something and not believe it at the same time. And people can have interests that are incoherently related Related to one another, so that my feminism is in contradistinction or a contradiction with my desire to look like Twiggy the model. These forms of interpolation are complex. The same message can speak to different addressees differently, but the same addressee may also experience that message differently at different times. These conundrums associated with interpolation and addressability require methodological. In my case, discursive and ethnographic attention and considerable nuance. A few other things. Scholars, in an effort to avoid romanticizing resistance, should think hard about the politics of reproduction. While it's true that reproduction places the very practices reiterated at risk, much of the important transgressive agent of work is not politically transformative, which isn't to say that it isn't significant in registering where political vitality resides or or how we cope, how we flail, and stretch genres, as Lauren Berlant would suggest, in meaningful ways. So rather than overemphasize agency, or for that matter, overemphasize structure, we need to think dialectically about structure and agency, taking into account the Important forms of irreverence, social movement, activism, protests, and alternative world making that have liberatory potential while also analyzing the formidable challenges to effecting social and political change. Finally, I just say that debates that reinforce the binary between the material and the symbolic or sometimes glossed as the ideational are misleading. The relationship here needs to be thought of as dialectical, and here I mean in the social sciences, in which language and other symbols are inscribed in material practices and material practices have symbolic effects. But even more precisely, there's a materiality to the symbolic and a symbolism to the material. They may be analytically distinct, but they are empirically lived as co-implicated. A version of ideology that stresses its materiality and structure Structuring Effects is what the book strives to produce.
1: In saying all of that, I think you offer an incredibly important and and powerful statement also for why interpretivist political science matters. It's precisely in breaking down those kinds of binaries that you just referred to in attending to the meaning-making practices that adhere to the parts of those binaries as they're conventionally understood. Is that, in a sense, a summation of how you would see your own work as interpretivist?
0: I think most interpretivists these days also do think about asymmetries of power in relationship to meaning-making, about the varied forms of meaning-making, which isn't to suggest that that messiness can't be mastered for narrative purposes so that one doesn't have to be overwhelmed by the messiness and eschew patterns, for example. So I would want to make sure that that was clear. Methodologically, I tend to be more uh, of a Foucauldian than I am a hermeneuticist. And it was, in fact, in doing this project that I realized how indebted Foucault was to the cultural Marxist tradition, particularly to folks like Althusser. So I think that that has been extraordinarily important to me in thinking not only about the possibilities for human innovation in relationship to meaning making, but also the ways in which those innovations often stay within in uh, genres of address that uh, reproduce power relationships, albeit in ways that also have the capacity to transform them. So I am interested in questions of social transformation, which some interpretivists are and some aren't. And I am also interested in thinking more not only about the content of the materials I look at, whether it's regime discourses or a set of everyday practices or in my selection of Syrian television and internet comedies as a way of honing in on questions of citizen ambivalence in particular, and the workings of ideology in general. Meaning is part of that, but it's not the only part of that.
1: Lisa, now that the book is out, what are you working on?
0: I'm finishing up a co-edited project with the fabulous anthropologist Joe Masco. It's a book entitled Conspiracy Slash Theory. And I'm exploring a new edited volume on cosmopolitanism, past and present, with Pratoma Banerjee, Dipesh Chakrabarty, and Sanjay Seth. And I'm writing a monograph on interpretation, concepts, and genre. When I can do fieldwork again, some of those essays will take me back to the Middle East in preparation for what I hope will be another immersive fieldwork monograph.
1: Among those many works I do hope that in particular the monograph that you're writing on interpretivist research and and methods is one that you'll come back to speak to us about when it's in print and I would very much look forward to that.
0: I'd be thrilled thank you.
1: Lisa Woodin, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science to Discuss Authoritarian Apprehensions, Ideology, Judgment, and Mourning in Syria. And listeners, if you found this episode interesting, then you may like to check out the two other episodes on exemplary interpretivist studies in the series so far, namely Sarah Marie Weeb talking about her everyday exposure. That's another of the Charles Taylor Book Award winners and James C. Scott on his latest masterwork, Against the Grain. These episodes are on the New Books Network website, along with tens of thousands of others across a whole range of topics. So if they're not to your liking, then I'm sure you'll find something that is.